to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. G'day, I'm Rachel, just going to do the Bible reading tonight. It's from 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Well, hi. Uh, If we haven't met, my name's Andrew. I'm the senior minister here. Um, It's been a big day. We had Matt's farewell earlier, but um, a good, you know, a good and important day. Um, But now we, we get to continue this series in this wonderful letter of 1 Peter. Um, The passage is printed that that Rachel just read. Thank you, Rachel. In your outlines, there's an outline there uh, as well. Let Let me pray for us as we get into God's Word again. Lord, please give your blessing to us. Teach us of yourself and teach us what it means to live as your people, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes the Christian way of life different or distinctive? I don't know if you've ever thought about this much. Um, I'm at a particular stage of one kind of life. Not, not that many of us here are at this stage. Uh, you'll be, uh, I'll tell you a little about it, but um, in the morning there's quite a few people who are at this stage uh, and they that kind of wry chuckle. It's, it's the stage of life with primary school-aged children. And the similarities with other parents as, as <clears throat> you know, I meet them at school or at a sports field on a Saturday or whatever, um, sometimes create a kind of depressing sense of solidarity. You know, we wake up, we spend a couple of hours trying to get nourishment into our kids and find their shoes, and then we drink coffee in order to be good at email for a few hours, and then we go home, or on the way home we spend a couple of hours keeping the commitments we forced our kids to make, and kind of, kind of, please, please, come on, come on, you've got to go, you know, this kind of thing, and then you collapse in front of Netflix or Angry Birds or something really terrible like that. Now that's an exaggeration, and thank God not everybody lives that life or lives it in that kind of way. Um, But more seriously, much, much, much more seriously, I reckon everybody here will have been struck 
by ways in which your life is similar to people you know, to other people you know, uh, or, or by ways in which you'd quite like it to be similar to people you know, people who are not Christians. I'm sure there are friends or colleagues, sports club, uh, that you admire, people you found a connection with because of shared values and commitments, sometimes even quite deeply held, held values. Um, you know, there's a lot we have in common with the people around us. People are facing many of the same struggles, going through many of the same experiences, seeking many of the same goals. So what makes the Christian way of life different? Does anything make it distinct? Well, we may find an answer in the passage before us today, the second section we're looking at in the letter of 1 Peter. In this passage, Peter starts talking quite intentionally about the Christian way of life. He contrasts the way of life that they used to have with the one that now lies before them because they've put their trust in Jesus. Um, and, and, and he says that this new way of life, it's got to be oriented by three things which give us our three headings for today. I know this is boring, and it, even more classically, there's a bit of alliteration with the headings this evening. Um, these three things are the coming appearance of Jesus, the holiness of God, and the fearsomeness of what God has done in Christ. And these three things, they mark out, says Peter, a way of life that is, is quite distinct because before everything else, it has God in view. I think what Peter says here is powerful and important, and I think it can help us be clearer about the way of life we are all called to in this world. So why don't we have a look at it together? We're going to work through those three. So here's the first one. The first thing that Peter says about the Christian way of life is that it should be oriented by a promise that Jesus will appear, that he will be revealed. Have a look at verse 13 again. First verse, it's on your outline uh, or on the screen. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Christian existence, says Peter, should be shaped by an awareness of a massive fixed reference point in the future. The appearance, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's actually important to notice that, the, that what Peter says there is that Jesus will be revealed. Right? Actually, the words, at his coming, have been added because that's what we're used to hearing um, and, and it does make sense of it. You know, we do believe that he'll come again. And the Apostles' Creed says he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So Christians are used to talking about the coming of Jesus, but actually the Bible talks as much, if not more, about that in terms of the revelation of Jesus. I want you to just hold that in your mind for a second. We, we need to not just think of that future in terms of the coming of Jesus, but as the appearance of Jesus. He is going to be revealed, finally made known for all to see. It's very interesting. This should actually be familiar with us from the opening of the letter. If you were here last week, we saw Peter keeps emphasizing the fact that what we're looking forward to is, 
is Jesus' appearance and the fullness of salvation coming with him. And the appearing of Jesus, Peter says, it must be the object of our deliberate, concentrated hope. Set your hope, says Peter. We're called to give a focus and a content to our hope. For it to become specific, we need to focus our hope on the grace that we will receive when Christ appears. And Peter says you've got to do this with minds that are alert and fully sober. What does that mean? Um, literally, Peter uses a really weird metaphor here. It, it, it is with the loins of your minds lifted up in readiness. That's weird. That's weird because we don't have loins. I mean, some of you might have loins, but it's not a word that comes to mind very uh, often. But it's basically a metaphor for getting yourself ready for action. Almost like Peter's saying, roll up your mental sleeves. Or get your minds on the starting blocks. It's an image of attention, of being awake. Not distracted, not foggy, but alert. Actively concentrate your hope, says Peter. Can I ask you, friends, are you doing this? How large does this future loom in your mind? How actively are you focused upon it? Because I reckon that for a lot of us, myself often included, the answer is not very much. Our minds are much more drawn by the here and now. And if we think of such strange things as the coming of Jesus, it's only pretty vaguely, foggily, not really with minds that are alert and sober. Now, I don't think Peter wanted his readers to just forget about the present, to turn their eyes away from what they had to do here and now. In fact, it's impossible to do that. Nobody can pull that off. But also, Peter is going to have a lot to say about life in the present. So don't worry about that. But I do think what Peter wants is for the dial to just shift a little. He wants the reality of the coming appearance of Jesus to come on the scene a little Because he knows that that will change a lot. It will put everything in a different perspective. You know, here is a real distinctive of the Christian way of life. It is oriented by, it is shaped by hope in a future that has a definite shape. Jesus will be revealed. He will. Bringing grace and salvation with him. It is a glorious future, a beautiful future. And if we let it, the joy of that will bleed back into here and now in all sorts of ways. Friends, if there's one challenge I think we should all take from the opening of this letter, I reckon it's this. Why don't you give a little more attention to the reality that one day Jesus will be revealed and the whole earth will be filled with his glory? Why don't you give this reality, say, Two minutes attention a day, maybe in the morning, or if you're not a morning person, in the evening. Your mind's alert and fully sober. So, you know, work out when that is going to work for you. Set your hope on it, says the apostle. That's the first thing. In the next verses, verses 14 to 16, Peter brings into view a second reality that ought to shape our outlook and way of life. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform 
to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. The second reality Peter draws into view is the holiness of God. You must be holy in all your way of life, says Peter, because the one who called you is holy. What does it mean for God to be holy and for us to be holy? The quotation Peter uses there, where he says, as as it is written, for it is written, is from the book of Leviticus. And it's worth being reminded of what holiness means in that book. Now, not all of us will be familiar with Leviticus and where it fits in. Some of you will have just had a little internal freak out just with the word. Like, I don't even know what that is. Uh, so let me just give you a bit of an overview. Right? The, nation, the story of the nation of Israel has a big backstory, and that's what you get in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. It's the backstory of Israel. But the story really gets going when Moses leads the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt on a journey towards the promised land. God rescues them from Egypt with a series of signs and wonders and leads them to a mountain in the desert on the way to the place they're going, the promised land, and that mountain is called Mount Sinai. And at that mountain, God gives his people the Ten Commandments and also a lot of other laws and the instructions for building a special tent called a tabernacle. That is the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Now, the tabernacle, this special tent, has one main purpose. If you're reading Exodus, it's a classic experience reading Exodus. It's like an exciting action movie. It's a thing Disney did The Prince of Egypt on. Really exciting, rip-roaring pace. You know, you're cranking through it. You get to Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, fire and thunder, and then 20 chapters of how to build a tent. It slows down like crazy, and it slows down because it's incredibly important. Because that tent is all about how can God live with his people? How can he be with them in a more concentrated, intimate way? Because what becomes clear is that that is really, really difficult. It's frankly dangerous. Because God is holy, and Israel isn't. And so the tabernacle has to be built in a precise way, and along with it goes an intricate system of priests and sacrifices, and all of that is what the book of Leviticus is about. The priests have to be clothed exactly right, and they have to approach God in exactly the right ways. It's like they're handling plutonium. And mistakes are deadly. In Leviticus chapter 10, we read of how the chief priest Aaron's sons, whose names were Nadab and Abihu, they have a go at just worshipping God in their own way. They just, they just do what is in their heart. You know, they just do what feels right. They, they, they offer worship in you know, the way that just kind of comes to them spontaneously. And, well, listen to what happens. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their senses, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. 
and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. The Lord is holy. He's holy, which means he is good with a purity that is perfect and therefore can be deadly for people like us. Because it is a, it is a light so bright, it can blind, it can burn. And the intricate regulations of the tabernacle and the priesthood, they are designed to show that for God to dwell with people is an extraordinary thing. To be handled with extraordinary care. And so Israel has to be holy because God is holy. But what does it actually mean for Israel to be holy? Like, how do they do that? Because people can't be holy in the same way that God is holy. People cannot be good with a purity that creates and destroys life. So what does it mean for people to be holy? Well, there are a couple of things to say. First, holiness does have to do with what we would normally call morality. In Leviticus chapter 19... What follows the words, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, what follows are a string of commandments about things like respecting your parents and the elderly, not stealing or defrauding other people, honest business, sex and justice, moral commands. But these commands are interlaced with things that are much more what we would normally call religious, things like keeping the Sabbath, proper conduct with sacrifices and not practicing divination and soothsaying. And so the second thing to say about holiness is that it's not just moral, it's also spiritual. In fact, the distinctive thing about holiness in Leviticus is the way that moral and religious commandments and patterns of life are interwoven into a seamless whole. Holiness for the people of Israel, is about the dedication of all of life to God. It's about the integrity of life lived as a whole with God in view. So what we are called to as Christians when we are called to be holy is a life that realizes its integrity as it is dedicated to God. A life that discovers its wholeness, its unity, as it is given to the Lord. There has to be no separating, no compartmentalizing of religious and non-religious bits. No, the whole of our life is to be offered to the Lord as obedient children, as Peter puts it. And there is a moral element to this. There is a moral element. As obedient children, it says... Go back. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. People sometimes wonder if Christians should still care about, you know, moral stuff these days. Well, we should. We have to, actually. Because holiness is about the whole of life. And God cares 
how we live. Each of us will be, at various points, called to refuse to say no to desires that we have had in the past and probably still have sometimes. Desires maybe to enrich ourselves at the expense of others, to become intoxicated, to have sex with people to whom we are not married, or view pornography. Desires to turn our back on our parents, or perhaps one day our children. Desires to slander or to, to, to be revenged on someone. To be holy simply does mean to turn away from those things. And I, I want to give a simple, old-fashioned challenge here, friends. If you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, are there things in your life that just shouldn't be there? Sexual immorality, deceit, slander, hatred, envy, drunkenness, greed. Stop. But not just because it's right. Not just because you're scared of what might result or because those things hurt other people. All of that is true, actually, and important. But you have a further reason. You have a precious, powerful, immensely privileged reason to put these things behind you, which is that you are called to be holy. You are called to be devoted to the holy God, prepared for and cleansed for his special service. You don't use a special sterilized dental instrument for, you know, cleaning the difficult bit of mold around the sink. I mean, it would work well for that, you know, those hook things. That would work, you know, but that's not what it's for. It's been cleansed, it's been prepared, it's made, been made ready for a special task of putting into people's mouths and scratching. It's not an amazing illustration, to be honest, but what I'm trying to help us see is that we... we we have been set aside for a purpose. We are called to let our lives discover their shape, their wholeness, their integrity as they are offered to God to be His and made pure by His power and purpose. You are called to let the whole of your life be formed by those moments when you give your powers to His service when you praise him, offer yourselves to him, give thanks to him, when you sing in church, that is meant to be a moment of integrity, not hypocrisy. Your whole of life is called to be consistent with that offering of praise. We have become, through Jesus Christ, children of a God who is holy, who is good with a perfect purity, and majesty, let's not forget that. But the final thing Peter says in this passage is perhaps the strangest one to our ears. He says that the Christian life should be lived in fear. In fear. Verse 17, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here, 
in reverent fear. Uh, Our translations actually made this a bit easier for us by adding that word reverent. Peter's words are pretty stark. He just says, live in fear. But that addition of reverent is actually helpful. It, It does catch the meaning because what Peter means is not just being frightened. When you're frightened, you actually stop thinking, and that's not the point. The meaning here is a sense of awe, like being overwhelmed by or or deeply respectful of something. I think Peter has in mind another one of the formative experiences of Israel. When Israel first meet God on Mount Sinai, it's, it's an incredible moment. God appears with thunder and lightning and deafening noise and they're terrified and they try to run away and Moses stops them with some really interesting words. Listen to what he says from Exodus chapter 20. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Do you see that? Don't be afraid. Fear. Don't be afraid. The fear of God needs to stay with you. What you need, says Moses, is is not mere fearfulness, but a deeper, more powerful sense of reverence and respect that goes deep and shapes your life. But why should Christians have this kind of reverent fear? Because we grasp who God is And what he has done for us in Christ. The God you call upon as Father, Peter says, judges each person's work impartially. He is a just God. He doesn't just give certain people he likes a free pass. Even his children, he he doesn't just say, let's not worry about, let's not worry about that stuff with you guys. He doesn't do that. But he does redeem He redeems. He is merciful as well as just. And Peter continues with incredible words that remind us of the price that this just father has paid to buy his children back from slavery and evil. Verse 18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. These are amazing sentences full of deep theology, well worth staying with for a long time, but the central idea is simple. A price was paid for you, an extraordinary price. Being redeemed means being bought back from someone. Slaves could be redeemed for a price in Peter's world. They could, their, their freedom could be purchased. It's an image of being set free at a cost. And what a cost. The precious blood of Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world, You and me being children of God, brothers and sisters. It is not something that was easily achieved. It might have not been too difficult for you, but but it was difficult. 
It was costly. It was not like God could just decide not to worry so much in our case, not to worry about all the ways in which we've been selfish and foolish and nasty, all the ways in which the life we'd grown up in and had inherited led us into injustice and death. It's not like God could just say, ah, let's just turn, turn a blind eye to that stuff. No, that's not the God he is. We were lost. We were slaves. But he bought us back. He bought us back at infinite cost. The idea of God buying us back is a metaphor, of course. He didn't literally pay Christ's blood for us. But it is a metaphor that tells us the truth and that we are allowed to claim to understand the grace of God. What would you pay to a kidnapper for a loved one? For a friend, a child, a spouse, a parent? If you were told that the price was a million dollars, or ten million dollars, what would you pay? What if it was more? What if it was more than anything you could ever pay? A billion dollars. What would it be like if you were the one kidnapped and someone paid a billion dollars for you? More. More has been paid for you. For you. An offering prepared from eternity, was given to win you back. Let it sink in. That's what you are worth to God. Something is worth, is as valuable, as much as someone will pay for it, right? That's what we say. Something's worth as much as someone will pay for it. Well, look what was paid for you. Look what was paid for you. And what this must do, Peter says, is make us fear. It must fill us with a sense of awe and humility and reverence. What a thing. How can we respond with anything but a reverence that trembles at the thought? Do you feel God owes you, friends? The opposite of fear, I think, is a sense of entitlement and complacency, a feeling that what we have is only what we deserve, only what we would expect. But we can only feel like that when we forget who it is that we call upon as our Father, who it is we expect to listen to every random prayer we pray, expect to be impressed by every modest effort at service. It is the Lord, the judge of all, and the one who paid a price of infinite worth for our redemption. What we see in this passage is that in the end, what makes the Christian way of life distinctive is simply its awareness of, its, its wakefulness to God. Look again how Peter finishes in verse 21. 
Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Isn't this a strange thing for Peter to remind his readers of, that your faith and hope are in God? It's like, so, he concludes, you believe in God. Duh! But actually, actually, that's what we keep forgetting. That it is God with whom we have to do. That this whole business of being a Christian is not just, not just a community organization, not just a movement, not just a philosophy, not just some ideas and some things that are good in the world. It's about God. It is him in whom we hope and we have no right to these things to be able to call on him as father and to look forward in hope to his grace. It is an impossible privilege, yet it is ours because of Christ. And so that reality, the reality of God, it must be the center and the guiding star of our lives, dedicated to him in holiness, hope, and fear. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the holy God. Let the vision of you never slip from our minds. Let the promise of Christ's coming never drop from our hearts. Let the majesty of our redemption never slip from our faith that we may serve you. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.